welcome to another episode of Sacred Cinema with me, your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, here on 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. This week's topic is entitled, The Home Ground Advantage. Yeah, some say it's, some call it the home field advantage. Uh, I think in Australia it's the home ground advantage. I'm talking about that feeling, that phenomenon that we observe when we go to like a respective sporting event or even in like an actual war, I suppose, uh, where the home team, the home side, for some reason or another, uh, has some kind of advantage over the visiting team or the away team. And in the context of sport, you know, it's because they've got a home crowd and they're cheering or they know the climate better or they're used to playing in snow or heat or rain or something like that. But I watched a film this week uh, that I think the characters, it sort of felt like they had this sort of uh, this sort of sense of confidence because they were at home. Uh, they, were in, they were in a sort of a, lo- a local uh, context or a local arena. Uh, which made them feel very confident and cocky and, and, and sure of themselves, despite the fact that in ordinary life, or at least in another context, in a broader context, we wouldn't really presume that those characters were particularly, uh, you know, crushing it in society. They're not a particularly dominating or domineering uh, group of people. And I was really interested in that. I was like, to what, e- to what extent does having a sense of home advantage impact power dynamics? So we're going to look at, we're going to start off with like a couple films that fall into a category or subcategory that we've talked about before. If you've listened to the episode we did on Blow-In's Bravado and Beliefs, where we talked about uh, Straw Dogs and Wake in Fright and The Wicker Man, all those films would definitely fall into this category we're talking about today. I want to sit in that in that space for the first sort of third of, of today's show. And then I sort of want to spiral out. I want to sort of spin out and start sort of asking a bit more, some more critical questions around the home ground advantage and, and sort of where it actually comes from and, and w- what are sort of some of the reasons why a person... Uh, may or may not, you know, um, be endowed with that advantage. Uh, may have that, ex- maybe have um, have uh, have access to that advantage, uh, depending on other factors. And then I want to kind of look at a real world, real world example that kind of unpacks it, in maybe a little bit more of a realistic sense. Um, so in order to do that, I will have to sort of set out what the films are. Of course, uh, the first film we're going to be talking about is this is the film that I was watching. Obviously, Halloween coming up. It is the spooky season. I thought I would go back to some of the classics. Um, this is a truly beautiful romantic film. It's uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, just uh, you know, one to watch with um, your loved ones. Uh, no, no, I mean it is it is a you know well you know well received and you know throughout history has been considered you know quite an innovative film for a couple of reasons. So we're talking about the, obviously the 1974 one by by Tobe. Hooper, Toby Hooper. Uh, then we're going to move on to a film that I saw just last week. I'm going to try really hard not to give too many spoils away. We probably won't sit in it for that long, but um, it's this new film by Zach Kreger uh, called Barbarian. And I think, you know, it may be not intentionally dealing with a lot of the issues that we're talking about this week, but it definitely, I think, serves uh, as a really interesting insight into, into this question of the home ground advantage. And then we're going to finish off with Edward Zwick's film from 2006, Blood Diamond. Uh, but let's kick it off now with The Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, from 1974. So if you don't know much about this one, uh, I mean, the premise is pretty well contained in the title. Uh, it's in Texas. Their chainsaw does get involved, uh, and there's a little bit of a massacre, I'm going to be honest. Um, so pretty much group of young, hip, sexy young people go out on, in the, their 
big van and they go into this sort of kind of weird town um, and they got to stop for gas. And I think this is actually an important plot point. I'm going to get into it in just a second. That they, they, they go to this petrol station that doesn't have any gas. Uh, and then they go and stay in this sort of dilapidated old house that one of them is somehow familiar with. Um, and then they hear the sound of some machinery off in the distance. Um, hint, hint. It, it sounds a little bit like this. <laughs> Uh, so you sort of gather what that might be. Uh, and then a couple of people head over there because they think that, that that person might have gas. Turns out they're this chap named Leatherface uh, who wears people's faces as his face. We actually did a whole episode on masks and this film does get into that territory. We're going to talk about that sort of thing in a, in a, in a moment. Uh, and basically then a massacre ensues and there's a chase and blah, 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 which, as you can guess. Um, but I think this is a really good film, much like those films I talked about before, Straw Dogs, Wicker Man, or Wake in Fright. And, and also a film like Deliverance as well. We haven't talked about that on the show, but I, I thought about bringing that one up. Um, they're sort of films where this sort of local group of people who are quite familiar um, to a specific realm, a specific uh, contained area, uh, they have this sort of. Despite the fact that they're, you know, they're kind of hickish, and uh, I, I don't know, don't use a slur here, but they're kind of like these sort of like impoverished redneck types. Despite the fact that they, you know, low socioeconomic status, not very att- attractive, not particularly like strong physically or anything like that either. It's kind of because they have this. It's sort of. It sort of seems this way that because they have this sort of familiarity or sense of home uh, within the context that the film takes place in. They do have an advantage over these, uh, you know, these 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 adolescents, these these teenagers from from another area. I think a film like Deliverance really plays into that as well, where you have sort of this this rural urban divide and this kind of contemptuous resentment thing going on. Uh, and despite the fact that the, the, the local people are a bit sort of like rough around the edges, they do completely sort of dominate these outsiders, these more urban, dare I say, civilized outsiders. So I, I suppose something that we can draw from a film like this is that the, the the power of the home ground advantage is such that it is able to subvert ordinary power dynamics. So when, when we talk about who has power in society, we sort of have a general sense of who might that be. You know, in, in modern times, we sort of talk about how straight white males are, you know, have sort of a patriarchal advantage. Of, and and there's sort of, we have a sense of conventional power dynamics. I suppose when you watch a film like this, it lifts up this idea that the home ground advantage is so powerful that those ordinary conventional uh, power dynamics are subverted. I mean, in this specific context, I think they all are straight white males that commit the, the acts of atrocity. But you, you get what I mean, that those ordinary power dynamics are able to be subverted purely because of this home ground advantage. And, and in, in sort of making that, that point, I think it's important to sort of go into, so so what is it specifically about the home ground advantage that endows local people or people who have uh, access to that advantage? What, what gives them so much power? And, and I specifically wanted to talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre for that very reason. So in this film, you know, the, the, the chainsaw itself plays a big part. And, and I think this is probably wasn't like a deliberate intention from from Hooper, but I, I, I do think it's sort of something that comes through naturally and organically in the film that the very thing that disempowers the victims in this film is the very thing that empowers the perpetrator in the film. So the, the, the victims in the film don't have fuel. They can't go anywhere. There's nothing that can ignite their... I don't know how a car works, but there's nothing... There's no substance that they can use to ignite their engine to get out of this given arena. Yet... The local people do have access to that very thing, fuel, and that fuel is literally the thing that fuels the weapon that kills these people, right? So there's a bit of a push and pull thing going on, and, you know, to put that in more... um, 
you know, to put that in more obvious terms, the film, as I said before, uh, the trigger for the meeting between the outsiders and the insiders, between the other and the familiar in this film is the sound of machinery. It's the sound of something that is being um, fueled by the very thing that these all these people need or that all these people want to use in order to fulfill their specific motives in in this given story so so fuel has this very i would say profound sort of metaphorical uh value in this film and, and it did sort of remind me in a in a weird kind of way uh and it's sort of the the, the, di- the dynamics have sort of flipped around in the sense that you know the the the, the, do- the dominating team in this uh film are the baddies whereas it, it reminded me in a weird way of a film where the the dominating or or for at least for a portion of the film the dominating dominating party is the good guy um a, a film by a guy called warwick thornton is australian film a couple of years out ago called sweet country and as you can tell from the title a big part of it is is about the like the australian outback and and the the value of it um sort of what its attributes and properties are and it's a very sort of decolonial anti-colonial post-colonial view which is that you know the, the, the sort of colonial view of the australian outback is this this harsh um vicious um territory uh, but that's actually a very colonial view and what this film does is it's sort of but, but by having familiarity with the country um you know with this what what is to him sweet country the protagonist in this film who's sort of this like this innocent outlaw is able to sort of draw this um european bounty hunter policeman guy out into what he thinks uh, is sort of like a harsh and what becomes a very harsh environment for him. But for our protagonist, it's somewhere that he can thrive. And it's, it does sort of lift up this idea that, that um, uh, that again, that power dynamics are kind of contingent on one's physical context. But I think that film sort of fits into a whole other category, particularly because there's a lot of interesting twists and turns in that film that I think I think actually warrants its own episode in a way, or at least that the themes in that film sort of warrant their own episode. So I'm actually going to park that one there for now. We are going to sort of get it into the sort of the indigenous uh, question in a moment as well uh, but I just think that film specifically probably needs to be in another way but I just thought I'd lift that up that this idea of geography and physical context um, having such a pivotal role in, in determining who has power in a given moment and I mean specifically a given moment because these films all have their own respective arcs and there's obviously uh, ups and downs and twists and turns throughout where the, 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 the dynamics switch as, as you'd expect in, in a film about power um, now, there's another aspect of this film that I also want to talk about, which is sort of how this home ground advantage is symbolized in the film. So, as I mentioned before, Leatherface, who is like the primary antagonist in this film, he wears people's skin and what you'd presume is victims' skin on his face. And I think in some of the later Texas Chainsaw Massacres, that's kind of like a bit of a bigger deal. Um, but I, I, I suppose in a way you could say that, you know, part of the, the, that, that, you know, there's a, ru- a rural urban divide thing going on here. But I think there's also sort of like a rural civility or civility versus anti-civility thing going on. And and in, in Leatherface sort of wearing that mask, he sort of puts makeup on and, and his his other his counterparts also, they do this sort of weird thing that a lot of horror movies do where they kind of do this weird kind of messed up version of civility. Like they wear like crooked ties and like funny suits and they try and like they like ironically set the dinner table for like this disgusting meal and like the old grandpa guy in this film has like a suit on it. And it's kind of like this sort of like absurd kind of wacky version of civility so as sort of to um it's sort of this like performative version of like it's almost like a like in a weird like it's almost got like this like um in it being kind of mimicry it's almost got this like this blackface element to it. it's kind of like you you're embodying this thing that you're kind of like satirizing in a way uh another movie another australian movie actually the loved ones does that sort of thing where they kind of dress up like they're sitting at a real dinner party but ironically because 
there's a guy with a hole in his head at the other end of the table. Like, and and I, I want to sort of unpack this idea of like embodying the enemy in this ironic way. And I think an interesting way to articulate it, particularly in the context of this this question around the home ground advantage and power dynamics and things like that, is that it, it's sort of like. It, it, it's sort of sending up or or sort of lifting up the the, the futility or sending up power uh, like ordinary power structures or or sort of implying the futility of conventional power structures or power dynamics in that given context in a way which sort of the characters are sort of simultaneously embodying a position of dominance by doing this like by wearing the suits by wearing the ties by setting up the dinner table they're kind of like embodying um, a powerful uh culture like they're trying to that they're trying to embody what it means to be powerful and you know domineering in society but also in doing that in their own kind of funky way they're they're mocking it they're sort of saying like you would ordinarily think that something like this gives you power but even people like us can do it you know this really means nothing doesn't it? and they're kind of sending up the idea kind of like mocking these people saying like you think just by wearing a suit and tie by setting the table that sort of endows you with a sense of power that's futile in this context what actually endows someone with power is a few chainsaw when you have no means of escaping that's really what um controls who has the power in this situation so i think this film has a really cool way of sort of like mocking and mimicking um ordinary power structures in in a specific given context but i think that the concept of the home ground advantage is a little bit more complicated particularly when we we're now sort of entering this territory where there seems to be a little bit of gray area the borders between you know who is who has power and who doesn't in a given context does seem a little bit fuzzy and i think this recent film barbarian deals with that in a, in a really interesting way but before we get into barbarian uh, just like to remind you, you are listening to sacred cinema here on 2xx 98.3 fm i'm your host jimmy bernasconi for the remainder of this half hour uh please stay tuned for to the station for more quality radio programming coming right up uh, but also jump onto our website if you can consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring sacred cinema or any of two x's wonderful programs uh and uh we very much appreciate you having a listen and please get in touch with me via the social media platforms uh, instagram would be preferred i would say these days you can find me at jimmy underscore bernasconi to get uh give a recommendation or some feedback about the show uh, or any questions whatsoever Moving on now, though, uh, you can also uh, email me to at contact at uh, jimmybernasconi.com as well. But uh, moving on now to Barbarian uh, from 2022 uh, th- this year, uh, directed by Zach Kreger. And this one is, I, I really don't want to give a, this one away because it's got lots of interesting twists and turns and things change. And it's been deliberately structured in that way. I would, even if, I would say if you want to see this film, don't watch the trailer either. I went in having not watched the trailer and it made it so much more fun and interesting. But basically, a girl shows up, she's rented this Airbnb in, the, in, the, in some way. We actually don't know what the style of film where it actually is specifically and she knocks on the door and Bill Skarsgård opens who we all know is very clever casting in this film to have him because we kind of know him as it the clown so he's a bit of a creepy looking dude uh Bill if you're listening you're a very handsome guy I think but you, you know I think you do sort of import that in this performance and so the whole sort of part of this part of the film in this part of the film we're sort of going eh, is you know this, this is kind of weird they've both booked the same Airbnb through different websites but but what I wanted to break that I wanted to break that down a little bit and sort of say that from the beginning of this film there is this sort of concept or motif of like home ownership or having rights to the home and so one of the aspects i wanted to talk about that this film lists up that that, that relates to today's conversation i should say is this 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 separation between the home ground advantage and home ownership and sort of lifting up this question of to what extent does having a right to a given context or a right to a given territory or arena endow someone with the home ground advantage right and so this motif throughout the film of because there's there's also a character in this film that literally owns that home, and then there's some other characters in the film that have 
let's say, a very interesting right to that home. And I, I really want to do an episode of Sacred Cinema about this this symbolic, this symbol that we've seen in cinema a lot in the recent years of, of people living underneath something. So like a movie like Parasite, um, Jordan Peele's Us definitely does that. I feel like there's something in the water where a lot of directors are using this motif of people living underneath in some kind of like cave or cavern or basement below a sort of like more bourgeois existence and this idea of living below and above and who truly has ownership or who truly has a right to the spoils that are being enjoyed above. Yeah, because Us and, and Parasite definitely get to that territory of, you know, who, who should rightfully be enjoying the spoils spoils of the labor and of the work and stuff like that. And I think this one is less a criticism of like sort of capitalism, but it definitely lifts up this idea of, you know, you never really know who's actually living under your nose. And you may have a sense of the home advantage. You may have a sense of home ownership, but ultimately who's really in control? Who is the true puppeteer? Speaking of us, for example, in this concept, uh, in this context, who is tethered to whom? And, in, and that's another way of saying, who actually has the home ground advantage despite, you know, varying senses or varying degrees of home ownership or attachment or a sense of belonging to that given context. So I don't give away too much of the film, but a big part of the film is all these varying degrees of um, legal rights or like rights. So you've got the people, you have the, the right to the home via Airbnb and, and that sort of thing. You have another character who has a right to the home via the home ownership. I've sort of mentioned that before. So I think when you watch this film, it does lift up this idea that legal ownership or a legal right or a, or, a, or an objective right or a natural right to a given place, to a given territory does not necessarily result in an endowment of the home ground advantage. Just because you own a given place, just because you have a legal right to it doesn't mean that in practical terms you have control or you possess it in the sense that would allow you to have that home ground advantage. And if we sort of import that or we sort of talk about that in sort of the the context of like the indigenous question. Uh, in Australia, for example, we have like the Mabo decision that nullified the terra nullius uh, principle, which was that Australia was a land belonging to no one. So you know, indigenous people sort of now have, I mean, it's a very complex area of law, but what I would say is that it's kind of widely understood, especially with things like native title, that the indigenous people of Australia do have sort of like a legal right to Australia, right? Or, or respective um, Aboriginal cultures and, and, and groups do have legal rights to certain areas. But our legal system here is currently structured that you wouldn't say that the Indigenous people of Australia have the home ground advantage, right? It's it's very much in the news that there's all sorts of inequalities and, and impoverishment and that sort of thing. You, you know, you wouldn't look at the country of Australia and say that, that the rightful owners of the land are the ones that are making all the decisions that have control and, and possess, you know, the most control over the land and what's happening to it and, and over the people and the things that are that are operating within that given territory. I mean, we're going to have a referendum pretty soon, pretty much around that question about whether there should be people, uh, whether th that Indigenous, there should be an Indigenous voice that has, that gives Indigenous people more of a voice, gives Indigenous people more of control over what we deem, what we understand and, and accept um, as what is legally theirs, or at least within sort of like a colonial um, conception of, of what is, you know, legal rights and that sort of thing. So I, I think in the real world, we do see that. And I think there's a really good movie that kind of depicts that in a really sort of interesting way. And I think it's probably time that we move on to it. Uh, and that would be uh, the final film for today's discussion, Blood Diamond, directed by Edward Zwick. 
uh, from 2006. So, um, you know, if we're talking about sort of this concept of colonialism and the idea of like uh, owning a given piece of land or owning um, one's home and the, the extent to which that um, allows someone or gives someone access to a sense of a, of a home ground advantage or, you know, I guess when we talk about the home ground advantage in this context, really just a sense of empowerment in one's own home, in one's own uh, local uh, vicinity. So this film is all about sort of like the diamond trade in Sierra Leone or specifically in West Africa because there's some you know mentions to Liberia and things like that uh, and, and just sort of the, the sense of like like the question of what is like nationality in the modern era uh, I think is also a really interesting concept uh, in this film as well um, but I, I guess the first uh, sorry to, to, if you haven't seen the film basically there's a couple of different characters you've got Leonardo DiCaprio's character who is from Zimbabwe he's a white Zimbabwean who kind of like is big in the market of is big in the diamond market. You've also got this character of Solomon, who um, he just had his, you know, had a, a a nice sort of pleasant family life in Sierra Leone. But then his son gets taken by uh, this guy, Captain Poison, and sort of goes in, and he gets inducted into this like child military thing, like you know that kind of like Coney twenty twelve kind of vibe. And I actually did read an article about the film. Uh, fans of the fans of the show would know that I don't really like to do too much like reading up before I do these shows about other people's takes on them because I kind of like to keep it original when I do the show and then then sort of read up on it afterwards. Uh, but I did this week do did read up on just whether people view this film to be uh, sort of like appropriate in the modern era. Just because there's a lot of stuff that I think in the film that I think would be done differently if it was done today for for good or for bad reasons. Uh, and I did read something on one of the websites that was like, oh, this is really like a very like caricaturistic depiction of like modern Africa. And, and I, I should probably acknowledge that from the get go, but I do, despite that, and I get that. And I've actually, I, I mean, I've been to Africa. I have friends from Africa. Like I understand that it's a very complicated place and Africa itself is a, it's the biggest continent. It's massive and it's very diverse. But I would say that like, I think a lot of, a lot of this film is um, like a, a lot of this film makes it worth watching in 2022, despite the fact that there are probably things that would be different. But um, basically it is lifting up this idea of, you know, um, this sense of who has sort of control over Sierra Leone at this given point because you do have all these sort of varying parties as I said you've got Danny for the Leonardo DiCaprio's character who's sort of profiting out of it uh, but he also is like a white guy and we kind of have this sense of like oh to what degree is he actually you know uh, does he have a right to it like like despite the advantages he might have in this given context sort of you know we're like like he's he sort of robbing the country of something that isn't rightfully his and obviously he sort of is in the way that he's like manipulative of a lot of the people and then you've got a guy like Solomon who is like like from Sierra Leone and his family's from Sierra Leone. Uh, but then he sort of butts heads with other people from Sierra Leone. And, and there's a really interesting aspect of this film that, it's, that, that I think it gets, whether deliberately or not, from a film like um, The Battle of Algiers, which is that that when you look at these sort of like a lot of these rebellious groups in these sort of post-colonial contexts, there's a lot of violent parties that are also like that that claim to be very nationalistic. So in the context of like self empowerment, like self determination, I think this film's really good. And, and obviously, Battle of Algiers is like the classic for this, where like you show that this local rebellious group that claims to be ultra nationalistic is also extremely violent. And so like you have this weird conflict where you're like, well, like. I suppose we want people that love Sierra Leone and, and claim to be from Sierra Leone to have power over Sierra Leone, but the people claiming those things in this film are like horrible, horrible people. So I guess the question, one of the questions this film lifts up is like, well, like who, first of all, who has the home ground advantage here? Because they all sort of have it in different respective ways, but also who ought to have it like for the sake of like humanity and that sort of thing. <laughs> and in answering that question, at least for the most part of this film, ultimately 
ironically, it's the outside world that has the home ground advantage, ironically, right? Like no one in these London department stores buying these diamonds and, and living in New York and, and you know, the rest of the world who, who buys like wedding rings with big chunky diamonds. None of them actually stand in Sierra Leone. None of them actually do anything or, or contribute in any way to Sierra Leone apart from, you know, buying its diamonds. But they're kind of the ones that ultimately possess, who control, who um, sort of manipulate and, and, and ultimately determine the future of Sierra Leone, despite the fact that they have absolutely no legal right uh, to own or do any of those things to that country. So this is very much a post-colonial film in that sense, where we, we sort of say that, you know, despite all the claims, despite the senses of belonging, despite all of the rightful legal rights that a lot of the characters in this film have to this respective arena, the ones that ultimately determine its future are people that are, they can't even see it. They don't even know that it exists. I mean, there might be people who listen to this show that don't even know Sierra Leone exists as a country, but through some means of capitalistic, uh, fair trade, uh, free trade, um, operations do have um, and do have a lot of control over what happens in those countries. I mean, I think we all do sort of in the developed world. So as audience members, we do sort of have to ask ourselves this question throughout this film, which is like, who do we actually want to have the home ground advantage? Because like a guy like Solomon is is the good guy, right? We, 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 we sympathize with him. We really want him and his son to be reunited. Uh, I mean, if you're not some kind of weirdo that, that doesn't sort of look at films through that sort of conventional lens of seeing who are the goodies and the baddies. Solomon is the guy that we're really rooting for. But at the end of this film, when 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 the spoils are being divvied up, right, when we when we start to settle the score and we determine to whom the spoils should go, and 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 I, I sorry, I don't mean to give away the ending here. If you haven't seen the film, maybe it's time to tune out. Um Solomon comes out on top despite being very disempowered throughout this whole time. But what happens to him is 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 not necessarily something that endows him with a, with a home ground advantage, or at least within the context of Sierra Leone. And vice versa, Danny, the Leonardo DiCaprio character, who we sort of are a bit conflicted by throughout the film, you know, he says some pretty racist stuff at some points and he does some pretty bad things. Um, he's kind of the one at the end that that has a pretty deep sense of belonging to Sierra Leone, and I'm not saying he necessarily has the home ground advantage by the end of this film, but there's a moment of empowerment where he is very much attached to the land, and there's this motif of red and blood, and you know, you know, where blood is often a motif of you know a deep connection to something. You know, the you know the the the, the blood of Africa runs through his veins in a way. Uh, whereas, where Solomon, to, to give the answer, to give it away, he's the one that ends up with the big classic suitcase, silver suitcase with lots of piles of cash in it and, and leaves Africa and goes off to live in London. So you almost have this like this subversion of what we, maybe in our minds we think to be classically right. Like like the, the, the guy who's actually from Sierra Leone is the one that leaves with all the money and, and the guy that's not actually from Sierra Leone is the one that, that, that sort of dies there and, and feels a sense of home there. And, and I suppose in, in a real world context, when you think about someone who like immigrates from like a, de- a developing country or like a war-torn country to live a better life in another in another context. We don't look upon that and go like, oh, how awful. I mean, it's awful that people have to leave their homes. That That is something that we feel. But we also do feel like, I'm glad they get to live a better life. That's a really, I mean, there's a lot of people who immigrate and are so happy that they were taken in and, and can start a new life in another country. I mean, we, we all have, maybe yourself, you have had that experience leaving a war-torn country and feeling, I mean, a new sense of home in a new place. So, 
tying everything together from today's discussion, I suppose we have to acknowledge that the home ground advantage is something that is significantly profound and and powerful. It's something that it makes sense why people might want to pursue it. But when we talk about barbarian, which by the way, it's no surprise it's called barbarian. The idea of a barbarian is someone who is on the outsides trying to get in, trying, you know, someone who actually is able to gain an advantage over, you know, a barbarian is someone that comes from, you know, is from the away team, but dominates the home team in a way. That the, the the nature of power is such that you know the home ground advantage is not necessarily ga- guaranteed to those that have you know rightful ownership or a legal right to the given home that we're talking about. So in tying it all together, I think that we should acknowledge that that our sense of home is important. Like having a sense of home is important, but but perhaps a sense of home is not necessarily attached to a fixed geographical point. And it's more really a sense of being. And and so when we talk about the home ground advantage, maybe it's not necessarily connected to a specific geographical place, or at least having a sense of advantages. And maybe there's different species of advantages. And, and the home ground advantage is what is but man amongst many. So I, I, I guess in summation, what we could say is that by, by understanding or accepting that our sense of belonging is, let's say, fluid, and it can sort of happen anywhere in the world, that maybe Maybe we need to open ourselves up to the to the idea that there may be all sorts of advantages everywhere in the world for us. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Sacred Cinema. I've been your host, Jimmy Berners, going to here on 2XX98.3 FM. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you again very soon.